Whether we are aware of it or not, we are surrounded by symbols that communicate to us an idea or a concept. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm your other host, Steve. Today, we'll be delving into the origin of some of the most recognizable symbols we encounter every day. Hi. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. We are literally surrounded every day by signs and symbols that we understand without even thinking about it. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Remember that song? <laughs> they are everywhere. <laughs> There's traffic signs, religious symbols, and plenty more simple graphics that convey a message or an idea. In Dan, Dan Brown's books, The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, the main protagonist, Robert Langdon, played by one of my favorite actors in the movie, um, Tom Hanks, right. is a Harvard, prof, quote, professor of historic symbology. Historic symbology. Historic symbology. Which wonder, is, I wonder how that job pays. Do, oh, it's a field well, of he study. Well, goes everywhere on the, yeah, the, that's right. I mean, the world. If you look yeah. at him in the movies, like, it must pay really well. <laughs> that's good. Okay, that's good. <laughs> and he's in high demand. Yeah. But, but, and I would love to be a student of that, that topic. Right. But the thing is, it's not an existing college course or really a true field of study, simply because there's a ton of symbols. Uh, it's just way too broad. Way well, it's high time we created one, don't you think? Right. That's right. right. Get on that. At Remnant Stew University, you can study. Oh, yeah. That's for later on. <laughs> but there is, okay, so there is the the uh, study of semiotics or semiology, okay. which is the investigation into how meaning is created and how meaning is communicated. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of kind of like symbols. Uh, it, its origins lie in the academic study of how signs and symbols, visual and linguistic, create meaning. This is such this is such an interesting topic and a personal fascination of mine, but right. it could easily be a long-running podcast all its own. So today we're going to discuss just a few common symbols and their origins and meanings and maybe visit it again in a future episode. We've trimmed it down, but there are many, many more that we could get into. But we're going to start with one that uh, is quite familiar, the Star of David. Uh, the following information was taken from a terrific website called MyJewishLearning.com and also from History.com. Now, most of us are familiar with the six-pointed Star of David. It's a common symbol of Judaism, and it features prominently in the Israeli flag. Geometrically, it is two triangles superimposed on each other, forming a hexagon in the middle, encircled by six-pointed triangles. Though today that symbol popularly communicates Jewishness, its association with Judaism are newer than you might think. I got to go to Israel in 2019. My wife and I were there for not a very long time, only about four days, but uh, we did get to see some of the ancient sites, and it was pointed out to us that the eight-candle menorah was a very common symbol of ancient Israel, but the Star of David was not anywhere to be found. At least not on uh, carvings on uh, on the ancient buildings or anything. Uh, some claim that it actually started appearing in the Middle Ages, but there's no real conclusive evidence for that either. What we do know is that in the 17th century, the Jewish quarter of Vienna, Austria, was marked with a hexagon to distinguish it from the rest of the city. And about that time, the six-pointed star 
uh, began to appear in uh, synagogue architecture, both in Europe and in the Middle East and even in North Africa. Uh, a few years ago, I actually got to tour a synagogue in Poland, a pretty old one, and the Star of David featured pretty prominently in the ceiling of that synagogue. Cool. That's impressive. In 1894, a Jewish military officer named Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Now, I've always heard about the <laughs> Dreyfus Affair. I didn't really know what it was until we researched for this show. Uh, but he was accused of and convicted of treason by, for allegedly selling secrets to Germany. He was sentenced to life in prison on Devil's Island. Two years later, it was learned that Dreyfus was innocent. But the French military tried to cover up the new evidence. The cover-up was leaked to the government and became a sensational scandal. The anti-Semitism of the military galvanized the Jewish community in France and the rest of Europe. This sparked the beginnings of the Zionist movement to reclaim Israel as a Jewish homeland. Well, now, after the Dreyfus Affair, the Star of David was adopted by the Zionist movement at its 1897 Congress, and this gave the symbol more international prominence. So that's when they really first started using that's it. That's when right. you start seeing officially. it. Okay. And then, of course, in the 20th century, <clears throat> the star became even more evocative of Judaism when it was used by the Nazis to mark mm-hmm. Jews for persecution. Those pesky uh, Nazis. Yeah, for sure. After the Holocaust, the same star then became part of the flag of the new state of Israel. What exactly does it symbolize? Well, there's a lot of different explanations that have been suggested, but none is universally accepted. It's a star. It's a star, right? <laughs> Six-pointed star. There is one theory, though, that's pretty popular that was uh, started by a philosopher named Franz Rosenweg, a Jewish philosopher. Uh, back during World War One, he started sending out postcards that had something that he called the Star of Redemption on it. He describes the two interlocking triangles, the corners of one representing creation, revelation, and redemption, the corners of the other representing man, the world, and God. So that's a little bit of symbolism of the Star of David. You've got a little bit more there, don't you, Jim? Uh, right, because I actually know? researched the symbol of, of uh, the Star of David as well, and I came across an interesting origin theory uh, that it was based on the name of King David. <laughs> So the three Hebrew letters that make up the name David is Dalit, Va, and Dalit. Oh. So like DVD. 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 He was ahead of his time. David. Yes. <laughs> Total discs. <laughs> but it, the consonants in his name. The letter Dalit in Abra- ancient Hebrew is actually a triangle. So okay. David would begin and end with, the name David would begin and end with a triangle. Right. Furthermore, Va, the letter V, also represents the number six as it's the sixth letter in the Hebrew a- alphabet. Okay. So in true in in Jewish tradition, I was going to say truest tradition. <laughs> in Jewish tradition, we words there. here all the time. I've been around as long. Yeah. Well, it is said that King David used the six pointed star made up of the two triangles as his signature, as right. well as a symbol on the shield he carried into battle. In fact, the Star of David is known in Hebrew as Magen David, right. which literally translates as the Shield of David. Oh, interesting. From the, the notion, okay, yeah, yeah. from the notion that the King of Israel wore this symbol on his shield. There's no Possibly historical so. proof of this. Yeah, though. None of those shields have been d- discovered, but uh, <laughs> it's a good theory. <laughs> hey, well, here's the thing: they don't know where it came from. Right. They don't know yeah. where it originated. So that's as good as as any. Right. So good. Well, this next symbol is a very uncomplicated one. Consistent, well, it's very complicated and uncomplicated. Yeah. Uh, visually, it's very uncomplicated, consisting of just a few straight black lines 
but it illustrates how very simplistic design can come to evoke strong feelings that run deeply through all of humanity and can take on a historical significance that defines one of the most horrific eras of recent history. I'm talking, of course, of the swastika. Yeah. I'm sure that yep. yeah, I'm sure that everyone knows what a swastika looks like, but it, just in case, I'm going to describe it. Specifically, the one adopted by Nazi Germany in World War II. Picture two black lines forming an X or a cross. Right. Each line then takes a 90 degree turn to the right, creating a type of squarish swirl going clockwise. Since the early 1920s, this symbol has been associated with hatred and fear as it was adopted as an emblem of the Third Reich, Mm -hmm. the official Nazi designation for the regime in Germany responsible for the Holocaust. It's unfortunate that the swastika was chosen to take on such a horrible connotation since it's got a long history of being featured in many old religions. Yeah, it's been around for centuries. That's right. And and it features heavily in Buddhism and Hinduism. I had a, a picture of Buddha wearing a swastika that was from uh, uh, that was on a statue from Japan that was about 800 years old. And so, you know, my students would always wonder, why is he wearing a swastika? Well, he can't, he thought of it first or so. It's been around <laughs> a lot longer than the, than the Nazis for sure. But that but that's the only connotation they're aware of is, yeah. is the Nazi one. Yeah. Um, So to Buddhists, it represents the footprints of Buddha. Hindus see Hmm. the right-handed swastika as a sign of Surya. Surya, I think it's how it's pronounced. The sun and auspiciousness and positivity. They view the left-hand version, so going in the opposite direction, as symbolic of the night and the goddess Kali. The the word swastika itself derives from the Sanskrit svastika, meaning conducive to well-being. So it was a good luck symbol almost in a way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They probably chose it for that, Yeah, but they lost well, it. Hitler, well, and Hitler then was they very superstitious, it. Yes. so you can understand why he might have chosen that symbol. Uh, the swastika was also used by ancient civilizations such as the Greeks, Egyptians, Romans, and Celts, and even appears on ancient pottery that predates recorded history. In modern times, the swastika enjoyed a variety of uses before its association with the Nazis. It's been used from everything from an old laundry in Ireland <laughs> to a Danish brewer, Kars- Carlsberg, Carlsberg yeah. and even the Finnish and Latvian Air Force. Because of the swastika being adopted by numerous First Nations groups of North America, like the Hopi and the Navajo, the British author Rudyard Kipling used the symbol on the dust jackets of his books in the late 19th century, most likely after he became familiar with it because his his father had a passion for Indian artworks. Both the clockwise and counterclockwise versions of the symbol appeared on his works because neither Kipling nor his publishers appeared to know which one meant good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Cover it both ways. But, you know, you do see it on, like, Navajo blankets Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. That's right. You can still see it. Kipling despised the Nazis and everything they stood for, however, so he was so disgusted by the Nazis and the sight of their flag that he removed the swastika from the book bindings. It's, it had been his trademark for nearly 40 years, but it was now, quote, defiled upon uh, beyond redemption. So wow. finding a book with that right. in it, is, it's going to be worth a whole lot of money. That would be interesting hmm. to, to see that in an old library, perhaps. It's interesting that the Star of David we discussed earlier was also a symbol greatly utilized by the Nazis as well. Jews throughout Nazi-occupied Europe were forced to wear, you know, the badges of means of identification, and it led a lot of them to the concentration camps and to death. 
But the Star of David, thankfully, has never assumed a negative connotation. The, no. the swastika. I mean, and, and I realize that the swastika was standing for the Third Reich. Yeah. But the Star of David, I think, is interesting that it continues to be used to this day, and it has remained right. um, a symbol of you know peace and a badge of honor, even somewhat. Uh, right. I think. And yeah. I I got my information from variouslistverse.com articles. Right. All right, well, let's move on to something else. Something cheerier. Cheerier, yeah, mm. absolutely. This is cheerier. <laughs> uh, you know, guys, when I was a kid, getting a haircut was a big deal. In that long ago time and place, uh, getting a summer buzz cut was a sure sign of school being out. My mom would give me a dollar, and I would get dropped off at Mr. Werner's uh, post office barbershop. Uh, named thus because it was just across Earl Garrett Street from the post office in my hometown of Kerrville. See, I never did that. I trotted my boys out on the front porch and <laughs> did it myself. <laughs> a big day came for me when it was determined that I had grown enough not to need the special booster bench that was used for little kids. That is now a I could huge sit in deal. the barber chair all by myself. <laughs> if I sat still enough throughout the procedure, I was rewarded with a stick of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. Each time I now smell that wonderful flavor today, I'm transported back to Mr. Warner's Barbershop. And I was always fascinated by the rotating red, white, and blue barber pole that hung outside of his shop. So what's up with that barber pole anyway? Well, from History.com, we find a terrific article by a talented writer named Elizabeth Nix about barber poles. The colors are a thrillback to a time even older than me and my buzz cuts. Yes, back during the Middle Ages. Uh, people went to see their barbers for more than just a haircut. With their skillful knowledge and sharp tools, barbers were also uh, sought out for bloodletting and other medical procedures. Bloodletting is involves uh, cutting open a vein and allowing blood to drain, and it was thought to be a common treatment for well a wide range, uh, a right. wide variety Everything. of maladies, yeah, from sore throat to plague. There were doctors in the Middle Ages, but it was thought that their time and skill was needed for more urgent care. Thus, the practice of bloodletting was passed on to barbers. Known as barber surgeons, they also took on the tasks such as pulling teeth, setting bones, and treating wounds. Ambrose Pear, a 16th century Frenchman, considered the father of modern surgery, started his career as a barber surgeon. Another website, you know, we have some interesting websites in this episode. We we always find the most interesting <laughs> websites, but in this episode, we've got some really, yeah, really cool sounding ones. <laughs> this one is called unitedbarbering.com, and they state that the practice is even older than the Middle Ages. They claim that the act of barbering goes barbering. Barbering, oh, yeah. Let's just, yeah, let's just appreciate that. The for act a minute. of barbering, barbering goes back to ancient Egypt. And is one of the oldest skilled trades. So is that like the difference between them and barbarian? Uh, yeah. And it's difference between that and bookkeeping? Or that's library. You lost Sorry. me. Libra- <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, you lost me too. Uh, Conan the librarian. I yeah, think Conan seen, the librarian. I think I've seen that before. <laughs> anyway, the local barber surgeon was responsible for grooming, dressing, and styling men, as well as performing surgery and dentistry. Their skill and steady hand with a razor was indispensable in treating soldiers injured in the battlefield, and barber surgeons were often relied on to perform difficult and often gruesome procedures like amputations that physical that physicians were uh, not able or willing to do at that moment. Both websites link the look of the modern barber pole to bloodletting. 
with red representing the blood and white representing the bandages used to stem the bleeding. The pole itself is said to resemble the stick that patients squeeze uh, to make the vein in their arm stand out more prominently for the procedures. You know, I've had them give me a little stick sometimes to squeeze to um, donate. You know, yeah, when you donate blood. Yeah. yeah, I've never had a stick. I've always had like a squeezy ball. No, yeah. It's, yeah. Now that now they just they give you and let you take it home. Nice. In some cases, <laughs> squeezy ball. Okay. Well, back when I did it, it was a stick. Anyway, yep, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that they pulled but, out of the yard. Right. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Just take this. Anyway, in Europe, barber poles traditionally are red and white, while in America, the poles are red, white, and blue. One theory holds that the blue is symbolic of the veins cut during bloodletting, mm-hmm. but most likely it's. Uh, as a nod to the American flag and a little show of patriotism. Yeah, uh, it's been Americanized. <laughs> so it looks better with a blue and a white uh, and a red stripe, I think. The one in my home, the one in the town that I was born in, in Wheeling, it, it was only red and white striped. Oh, it must have been old school. Yeah, then. so it, yeah. It, it was well, you it was find old. Yeah, you find both of them, yeah. you, both of them throughout yeah. the United States. But, I always walked in and I said, I want one of those candy canes like out front. <laughs> and it's neat because some of them are, um, most of them are stationary, but every now and then you find one that, that, that twirls. The, the twirls. Well, I remember my yeah. ours was motorized. Uh, Mr. Warner's was rot- motorized and you would you could just see the, the stripe continuously going. I thought that yeah. was fascinating. Mm-hmm. By the uh, mid-1500s, English barbers were banned from providing surgical treatments, although they could continue extracting teeth. Both barbers and surgeons, however, remained part of the same trade guild until 1745. While bloodletting largely fell out of favor with the medical community in the 19th century, it is still used today mm-hmm. to treat a small number of conditions. That's right. We've talked about <clears throat> this in our um, Strange Medicine Strange episode. Medicine's right, yeah. And I'd like to re- recommend a really terrific book called The Bloodletter's Daughter uh, by Linda Lafferty. Um, it talks about it takes place in the 1600s in what's now the Czech Republic in a beautiful place I got to see called Chesky Krumlaw. So highly recommend you look up that book. Well, now speaking of medicine, most likely you've seen the RX symbol on a written prescription or at a pharmacy. That's right. If you like me, you may have wondered how does RX mean medical prescription? In a different history.com article, the same writer as the previous one, Elizabeth Nix, spells it out for us. According to Nix, and verified by other sources, Rx is derived from the Latin term recipe, meaning take. That seems easy enough, but recipe wait. means take. take That's in interesting. Latin. Yeah, okay. so take this recipe. <laughs> <laughs> recipe take. That, take it or leave it. That's what I tell <laughs> <Take>. my kids. <laughs> And no, it's not two chocolate chip cookies and calling them in the morning. <laughs> but, you know, there is an alternative theory, and this one's kind of interesting. According to Learning English at voanews.com, the RX symbol goes back to ancient Egypt. Must have been oh, cool. akin to the barbering back there, too. Yeah. <laughs> Same uh, guild. <laughs> and it has to do with Horus, the sun god. Well, Legend course. said that when Horus was a child, I guess it was just a son child at the time, Seth, <laughs> the demon of evil, attacked him. So is that his older brother? I don't know. Yeah, okay. uh, Seth uh, yeah. Uh, put out the eye of the young Horus, but the mother of Horus called for help. Thoth, T-H-O-T-H, the god of learning and magic, answered her cries. Granddad. With his, <laughs> uh, with his wisdom and special powers, Thoth healed Horus, and the child was able to see again. The ancient Egyptians used a picture of the Eye of Horus as a magic sign to protect themselves from disease, suffering, and evil. They claimed that the Eye of Horus morphed into the RX symbol. 
Regardless of where or how the RX symbol originated, the practice of pharmacy, the preparation and dispensation of drugs, has been around for thousands of years.、Mm-hmm. It's believed that the world's first recorded prescription was etched on a clay tablet in Mesopotamia in 20, around 2100 BC. In fact, they actually have found a clay tablet.、Uh, With a pres- with a prescription on it,、use、and they it. were able to read it. Yeah, it yeah. says you know? use this leech twice a day. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> call me in the morning. It was in, it was in Sanskrit. Yeah, they've been able to read it.、Uh, the first drugstores were established in the ancient city of Baghdad in the eighth century A.D.、Um, the practice of stapling the bejeebers out of your receipt and, and permanently sticking it to the bag containing your medicine <laughs> began at a Walgreens in Chicago to prevent your receipt from blowing away in a windy city gust. Okay, I just made that part. And、up. we、really、thank Walgreens for participating in this giant humor <laughs> box. But hey, hey, and we have to, you know, we have to throw shade on CVS with that long, long receipt. Well, that's、yeah. to wrap it. Ar- that's to wrap it around, and then staple and it twenty times so that、yeah. you know it's fully been. It's ka-ching, now ka-ching, been wrapped ka-ching, ka-ching, and stapled. <laughs> yeah, they go crazy with the staplers at those places, don't they? Anyway, back to Elizabeth Nick's article on History dot com. She、uh, claims that America's earliest drugstores date to the 17th century in Boston and New York. Before he became infamous as a traitor during the Revolutionary War, Benedict Arnold was an apothecary or pharmacist in Connecticut. The first College of Pharmacy in the United States was founded in 1821 in Philadelphia. In the late 19th century, it was an Atlanta pharmacist named John Pemberton who invented the formula for which that would become Coca-Cola. At the time, Pemberton claimed his new concoction cured a variety of afflictions. I think mostly it made you forget you had afflictions because it was a heavy dose of cocaine, I believe. <laughs> hey, once ingested, you feel great. <laughs> Prior to the 1950s, and I didn't realize this. Uh, prior to the 1950s, the majority of prescription medications in America were compounded by pharmacists. That means、uh, each medication was custom made from raw ingredients to、uh, suit an individual patient's needs. Right. Okay. But around the, the 1950s and beyond,、uh, pharmacists filled most prescriptions with mass-produced products from drug companies. Today, the mortar and pestle used by pharmacists for centuries to make medications remains an industry symbol, often appearing on drugstore signs along with the RX symbol. That's right. So there's another symbol for you. Yeah, the、there、mortar and pestle. In fact, my great great grandfather was a doctor up in Illinois, and one of my cousins up there still has the mortar and pestle that he used. I got to see、oh, it a few、wow. years ago. That was cool. Well, staying on the topic of medicine for just one more story, a symbol that all of us have seen consists of, and you got to picture this: a staff with wings at the top, and two snakes coiled around it. Now that thing always freaked me out. How does that mean get well? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so it makes you think of medicine, right? It evokes medicine or healing.、Um, it makes me think creepy, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it actually has nothing whatsoever to do with medicine. Of course, why not? Because we just、yeah. pick random symbols anyway. They、well, stick them on hospitals, though. <laughs> they do.、There. Okay, so the symbol is called Caduceus. Oh well, no wonder. Now it makes perfect sense. Which is Greek. Okay, it's Greek to me. <laughs> it's Greek for herald's wand or staff. It's an ancient symbol that represents the staff of Hermes in Greek mythology. Hermes、uh, was the patron of tradesmen and merchants, so the caduceus often appeared on coins and in heraldry. So you're saying that all physicians that use it are are are, are wanting salesmen, money? yes, salesmen, <laughs> tradesmen, and merchants. Yeah. yeah well, its association <laughs> with commerce is even seen today, as the caduceus is used as a symbol of the customs agency of Bulgaria, 
and of the financial administration of the Slavic Republic. Oh, okay. I'll so, look for those. Okay. So does it sound... Bulgarian cheese. It might be right on there. <laughs> so, so, okay, back to it. It doesn't sound too medical, does it? So <clears throat> if it made you think of medicine, it's because the caduceus is frequently used by medical or healthcare organizations, but only in the U.S. Call it snake oil. Yeah, but whenever snake oil salesman, snake oil that's oil. what they are. Yeah. Whenever you see this, you're looking at a mistake. The caduceus is often confused with, okay, the rod of Asclepius, which is depicted as a as a, a staff with okay. no wings and only mm-hmm. one snake coiled around it. Asclepius was considered the most skilled physician in ancient Greece and was de- deified as a Greco-Roman god of healing. So, his staff has long been the dominant global symbol of healthcare, healing, and medicine. So, according to to mythology, he received his medical wisdom from the whispering of snakes. So, that's why the snake snake is quoted around. Oh, they're telling them how to heal people. (laughs) The relevance of Asclepius is even reflected in the original Hippocratic Oath. That begins with the invocation, I swear by Apollo, the healer, and by Asclepius, by Hygieia, by Panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses, making them my witnesses, that I will carry out yada, 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 yada. So that oh. was the original. Now the the Hippocratic was on Oath. Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's no keep it in. For you. Keep it together. <laughs> I think you looked up that the uh, the oh, Hippocratic yeah. Oath actually has been changed. They've changed since it. Then. Yeah, they no longer. They cut off the first half. Yeah, yeah they don't. Know. They don't no, invoke all, all of those gods anymore. I think anymore. it means uh, I will. I, I do no harm. Basically, is what they boiled right. it down to now. Right. The rod of Asclepius depicting a serpent entwined around a staff that is traditionally a knotty tree limb is a fitting representation of the physician's art of healing because it's a combination of the staff, which is symbolic of authority uh-huh. and uh, and wisdom, and the snake, which I... And <laughs> 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 well, okay, so the snake can, can work, all right? It's an apt representation of the duality of sickness and health or life and death because as it's venom Either can kill. Either I'll tell kill, you how to cure it or I'm going to bite you and you're going to die. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so okay. it's venom can kill but it can but venom has also snake venom has been used for medicinal Just purposes. Per- yeah. Right. Absolutely. Taking it down. Have you ever seen a milk snakes, you know, for the for the venom? Yes, that's like really cool. cool. That's yeah. a really scary job. Yes. I would never want to do that. Yeah. Um so the icon was displayed at the temples of Asclepius that became popular healing centers of the Greek Greco-Roman world. Now, according to the website called healthcaresuccess.com, the original case of mistaken identity between the two similar but historically different icons occurred around the uh, year 1902 when a U.S. Army officer mistook the caduceus as a reference to medical practice and successfully proposed the emblem to represent the Army Medical Corps. The Army Medical Corps. <laughs> oh, there was no fact. Checking back. No, then. there Got was no it. fact. There was no Google. There was no good Google. to me, Sergeant. Couldn't Let's go for it. Hey, oh, I like that one. And Looks so, really cool. and so, other civilian entities took took that example, and it just <laughs> spread. And once they listen to our podcast, they'd understand it, and they'll go change their. That's, own. Right. That's right. That's right. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> About seventy six percent of healthcare organizations get it wrong and use the caduceus, while seventy. Or I'm sorry, sixty two. Percent of professional associations use the rod of Asclepius. Information that Wikipedia gets from the 1992 book by Walter Friedlander, The Golden Wand of Medicine, a history of the Caduceus symbol in medicine. Okay. Of course, since the original mistake was made by the U.S. Army, this, this is only a problem that we in the United States deal with. 
The rest of the world knows how to properly symbolize medicine. And research the right one. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work, folks. <laughs> I got my information. <laughs> I got my information from healthcaresuccess.com, Wikipedia, and ancientsymbols.com. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All right, let's take a little break from all this wonderful signs and symbology. And uh, let's delve into the world of sports for a little bit. Today, we're going to learn about one of baseball's dirtiest secrets. Now, I'm not talking about sign stealing, using hidden cameras and trash trash can lids. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm talking about literally one of baseball's dirtiest secrets. In 1938, the Philadelphia Athletics third base coach, Russell Lene Blackburn, waded into a tidal tributary in the Delaware River and realized that he was soaking in a solution for one of baseball's biggest problems. You see, back in the 1930s, baseball was a much more dangerous sport than it is today. Newly made balls were slick, and pitchers had a hard time controlling their tosses to home plate. Teams tried to improve each each ball's griff by uh, scuffing the hide with uh, bleacher dirt, Tobacco juice, shoe polish. anything they could get their hands on to rough this stuff up. Even licorice was trying. Okay, but bleacher dirt. That's that's such a weird... Yeah, well... Specifically. That'll be a different ODJ while we talk about why they use the dirt in the bleachers. (laughs) That's like couch dirt or whatever, you know, (laughs) stuff you find under the cushions. Bleacher dirt, it's different, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This was less than ideal. Umpires complained that these applications made the ball easier to tamper with. Over the course of the game, scuffed-up balls got much darker and softer, making them not only more difficult to control, but also more difficult to see. Keep in mind that the batting helmets didn't appear in baseball until the late 1960s. That meant that batters were literally risking their lives each time they went to bat. In fact, actually in 1920, a shortstop for the Cleveland Indians was killed when he was beamed by an errant pitch. Mm. So when Coach Blackburn came across a slick patch of mud near his hometown swimming hole, his mind went straight to the playing field. The goop was gritty, but it resembled a mixture of chocolate pudding and whipped cold cream. <laughs> How would he know that? I'm not sure, but okay. Standing in mud. Taste testing. He must have had some kind of an epiphany there because uh, he toted some of the gunk back home and found that, sure enough, it smudged the ball perfectly enhancing the grip without damaging the leather. When Blackbird showed the results to American League umpires, they gave the application a thumbs up. By the 1950s, every major league team was using it. So now today, before every major league and minor league game, and as well as many college games, an umpire or a clubhouse attendant wipes a light coat of Blackburn's magic mud, that's that same Lena Blackburn we talked about earlier, on each ball. Uh, in fact, uh, I was listening to a game the other day, and they mentioned that they prepare about two, uh, about uh, 12 dozen balls ahead of each game because, you know, balls get fouled off or they get scuffed up. And so oh, yeah. they have to keep bringing more of them out. It's a rule in the major leagues that all regulation baseballs must be properly rubbed so that the gloss is removed. Though it's rumored to be located somewhere on the banks of the Delaware River near Palmyra, New Jersey, the mud hole's exact location remains a closely guarded secret. Only one person, Jim Bentliff, the mud solitary farmer, <laughs> knows exactly where to find it, and he refuses to tell anybody about it. A baseball you, you know, you mud know, farmer. You right. know, there, there's there's a question still that's just lingering here. Uh huh. Why didn't they go to the baseball manufacturer? 
manufacturers and say, rough it up just a bit. Quit making them so stinking glossy. Uh, that might have cost extra. I don't know. But that's a good question. They're still though. Yeah, selling billions that? of balls. Yeah. If you're having to do, you know, what, three to three to four dozen a game, yeah. no matter what game it is. Well, they probably want it. They They probably want to make sure that it's roughed up to a certain like they want to see it they yeah. want to rough it up to a certain degree I, i'm still i think, I'm I think still, it needs to but be you're done right, you're right just, yeah. it's just like okay this it'd be I more efficient there's a different solution to right this. maybe so but it does seem like you know it needs to be done right before the game to have the the, the impact optimal the right right that's okay. possible too yeah okay now you can actually buy lena blackburn's baseball rubbing mud but only from their website baseballrubbingmud.com <laughs> A personal size container will set you back about $25. And this information came from an article on mental floss. I wonder how, how it works as a mud mask on your right. face. No. <laughs> <laughs> we can find another alternative. It's not what this isn't Are the you mud you're looking it? for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now back to our signs and symbols. If you're ever wondering where the dollar sign came from. We stole it. Oh, wait, sorry. Well, you're in good company because no one really knows for sure. <laughs> That's right. S is not in dollar. Right. Uh, there. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, well, it's in dollars, but I thought, <laughs> and so are a double L. I thought that's where it came from. But anyway, uh, several theories have emerged over the years. According to History.com, the most widely accepted explanation, according to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, goes back to the Spanish peso which was accepted as the basic unit of value in colonial America during the late 1700s. Now, I really did not know this, even though I taught history for a long time. But I guess uh, in the early uh, years of our country, we really had trouble getting our own currency up and going. And so the actual Spanish peso was considered, uh, widely considered as a uh, good means of trade. Uh, This is verified. yeah, we didn't like the Brits. Yeah, for sure. We want to stay away from the pound, you know. Uh, verified by a website called Coinsite.com, they claim that the Spanish pesos were common currency in America up until the 1850s. Wow, wow. that's a yeah. that is a long, a long time. Late. Handwritten manuscripts dating to that time show that the Spanish peso was abbreviated PS. It's believed that as time went on, the abbreviation was often written so that the S was on top of the P, producing an approximate of the dollar symbol. Okay. The first dollar symbol appeared in print after 1800 and was widely used by the time the first U.S. paper dollar was issued in 1875. We had coins up, uh, you know, before then, but uh, uh, not paper paper money. Uh, through the P, uh, I'm sorry, though the PS theory is now widely accepted, various alternative explanations have been proposed over the years uh, for how this symbol came into existence. One of the most popular came from a libertarian philosopher and author named Anne Rand. You've heard of her. In her 1957 novel, Atlas Shrugged, uh, included a chapter on the dollar sign, which she claimed was a symbol not only of American currency, but of the nation's economic freedom. According to Rand, the dollar sign, written with two downward slashes instead of one, came from the initials of the United States, a capital U superimposed over a capital S minus the lower part of the U. No documentary evidence exists, though, to support this theory. That's cool. Okay, so... Well, I like mm-hmm. that. I think that with the two, you know, the two uh, lines on it, which normally I draw like that, too. 
Right, two lines or one. It's it's interesting that that it goes back and forth. You you can find both of them, but superimposing a, a letter over another letter, it's not something we do a whole lot in America. But it's right. called. I think we we discussed it before. It's called a ligature, mm-hmm. and it pulls two two letters together like that. Right, and it's uh, that was we talked about that on the ampersand. Remember? Oh, there you go. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. All right, now back in what back in the days when I was getting my buzz cuts, this was a rather controversial symbol in my little town, anyway. Uh, from a terrific website called CompellingTruths.org. There's a there's a good one, one for one, you. Yeah. We find an article simply simply titled "How Did the Peace Sign Originate?" We are grateful to the authors of the website uh, for allowing us to quote their information directly. So thank, thank you very you. much. Uh, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, it's. Um, CompellingTruths.org. Thank you very much. The peace sign, sometimes called the upside-down broken cross, originated in the late 1950s as a protest against nuclear armament. The Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, the CND, states that the symbol came from Gerald Holtham, a professional designer who graduated from the Royal College of Arts in England. Holtham was a World War II conscientious objector who spent the war working on a Norfolk farm. He was trained in the use of semaphores, which is a military signal system using two flags positioned in different ways to communicate with inside of another person who understood the code. Holtam incorporated the symbol for the letter N, which means a person's holding the flags downward in an inverted V, along with the letter D, uh, in which one flag is held straight up and the other pointed straight down. The N stood for nuclear and the D for disarmament. Cool. The Direct Action Committee Against Nuclear War employed the symbol on buttons and banners in its 1958 Easter weekend march from London to Aldermaster, England, where nuclear weapons were manufactured. Later, Halton said he wanted to use a cross in a circle, but clergy had discouraged him from doing so. Holton said he used the inverted V to represent despair about nuclear weaponry, but later said he wished he would have turned turned it around and faced it up uh, to represent the joy brought through uh, by peace. He never mentioned knowledge of any prior knowledge or symbology of the sign. Now, from England, the use of Holton's peace symbol grew. It was brought to the United States by Bayard Rustin, who had participated in the Aldermaston March, and was a civil rights protester. It was first used in the United States by Albert Bigelow, a pacifist protester who flew the Committee Against Nuclear War banner from his boat while sailing near a U.S. nuclear test site. (laughs) Civil rights and anti-Vietnam War demonstrators later adopted the symbol. As they said in my town, them long-headed hippies are out there playing that peace symbol when we were getting our buzz cuts. So, Wait, you know, the uh, long-headed hippies. Long-headed hippies, yeah. <laughs> they don't come in here and get their hair cut. Yeah, anymore. that's right. <laughs> the Peace Museum in Bradford, UK, displays the history of this peace sign with original sketches and uh, documentation of its use. They have been claimed connecting, uh, there have been claims connecting the peace sign to communism, Nazism, occult use, Hinduism, and anti-Christian symbolism, but such claims are unsubstantiated. So it tends to only go back to the 1950s, 1958. There you go. 
Well, the next symbol we're going to talk about is the skull and crossbones. Oh, good. It's interesting that we talk about it now since we recently talked about it in our Secret Societies episode about the organization called Skull and Bones. It's, of course, represented by the symbol. And we're planning on uh, an episode. We're planning an episode on pirates. So we're definitely going to talk about it then. That's right. On the Jolly Roger. Jolly Roger. The flag that represents pirates. Um. But we we also talked about the symbol appearing on tombstones in our episode around Halloween of last year called Curiously Interred. Right. Went on that a was tombstone. a great episode. That was really fun. fun. Yeah, that was a fun episode. <laughs> Went on a tombstone or in a graveyard, the skull and crossbones or the winged skull is understood to represent death and the idea that life is fleeting. The symbol was referred to as memento mori, a wow. Latin phrase that means remember you are mortal. Remember, you must die. To yeah. prompt one to remember that eternal life is within each of us and to strive to reach advanced spiritual heights. The image taught that although death may come, the soul transcends the demise of all that is physical. The skull and crossbones symbol consists. Okay. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows what it looks yeah. like, uh, but the two long bones crossed beneath, you may not know this, uh, are generally understood to be the long bones of the human human body so the femurs oh yeah your thigh bone yeah the thigh bone that's the largest and strongest bone in the body the catacombs of Rome and Paris have many places where the bones are arranged this way. I was watching something on that just the other day, and they're really pretty, you know, walls and walls sort of skull with the bones right in front of them. It's really quite that's striking. Right. I mean, some, you, somebody was artistic yeah. down there and had a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> so, because as they, what else they are we going to do with them, these things? Right. Yeah, as they stacked them, they, they made all kinds of designs, and the skull and crossbones appears in a lot of places. In fact, the... Uh, in, a, 19, a 2019 article on transformmagazine.net right. talks about the modern-day logo created to depict the catacombs of Paris. It's a play on the skull and crossbones in a black-and-white uh, motif fe- featuring a skull being formed in the negative space of the letter C for catacombs. Oh, I know okay. it, it doesn't do it justice to just describe it, so we'll have yeah, a picture of it. Yeah, we better put a picture of that one up. Yeah. <coughs> in Northern Europe... Uh, the skull and crossbones were used on rosaries and large wall hangings. It symbolized memento mauer because it became very fashionable. Mm-hmm. It was later, and it was later used to very symbolize what well, it oh, was. I love your skull and crossbones. <laughs> Where did you get well, that? Oh my it gosh. was it must, must have, must have. Want, I need want. those cufflinks. Did you get them? I, oh I come them. on! In Victorian <laughs> England, it really was. That's what, well, that's true. Yeah. Remember when we talked they were about fascinated the about uh, death. everything were, was great. That death mask of yeah. the girl that they they yes. pulled out of the same. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was fashionable. Oh, yeah, the casket doll. I remember that. It, that That's the the original gothic, yeah. right? The original goth people. <laughs> they pulled it up. They pulled it off much more fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> and in the, ni- in the 1850s in New York, the skull and crossbones symbol was first used on medication to show danger of death or danger or death, which led to the modern day use of the skull and bones on bottles to depict poison. Poison, yep. yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. of course, now we have Mr. Yuck. Mr. Yuck. Mr. Yuck. You can't get Mr. Yuck. Mr. Yuck is green. <laughs> but it's, a, you know, a lot of these symbols originated in the same way. They originated as ways yeah. for it, people that did not know how to read. Yeah, for sure. To, you know, to communicate well, ideas to them. If you're illiterate, you can still tell what it means. Well, the skull and crossbones was also used by various military groups, pirates, fraternal societies, sports teams, and rock bands. 
Well, of course. It's an enduring and versatile icon that's come to re- represent so many concepts. There's sacrifice, poison, danger, death, bravery, toughness, you name it. Right. So I got uh, my information from listverse.com, transformmagazine.net, and ancientsymbols.com. Well, my uncle, uh, during World War II, was in the Marine Raiders, and that was their patch of skull and crossbones. Yeah. A different, kind of a different look to it, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, now, I'm sure that most everyone is familiar with the male and female symbols. Of course, I'm referring to the circles, the female symbol being a circle with a cross descending from the bottom, and the male being a circle with an arrow extending from the northeast edge. Right. These symbols are very ancient. However, they have only been used to designate male and female for less than 300 years. Well, let me explain. That's just short term. Yeah. From a nifty website called... Todayifoundout.com, <laughs> we discovered an equally nippy article about the origin of these two symbols. You guys might want to write that site down. Yeah. <laughs> the ancient uh, Greeks, they were polytheists. That means they had multiple gods. Uh, over time, they began to associate their gods with the natural world. They used their gods' names to represent elements from the mineral, uh, mineral world. For example, Mars was used to represent the hard metal iron. Venus was uh, the name given to copper. Over time, they developed shorthand symbols for the names of these elements. Now, you might recall a popular book from back in the (laughs) 90s called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, in a sense, this is literally true, as what later became the male and female symbols were originally those used to represent Mars Iron and Venus, copper. Now, my daughter says boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think she's probably right. (laughs) Some of us may resemble this remark. Yeah. In medieval times, European scientists uh, continued to rely on these shorthand symbols for minerals. Including among these notable scholars was the acclaimed Swedish botanist Carlos Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy which means classifying organisms. Well, Linnaeus was the first to actually use the signs in a biological context in his dissertation, Plant Hybrid, in 1751, where he used the symbol for Venus to denote a female parent of a hybrid plant and a symbol for Mars to denote the male parent. Following in Linnaeus's footsteps, other botanists incorporated the symbolism, as did scientists from other fields, including zoology, human biology, and eventually genetics. So it actually started with plants, male and female plants. Hmm. Today, these symbols are recognized internationally and can be seen on restroom doors even. It's it's interesting to me that the, the orientation of the symbols are important. Right. Like the female one points down and the male off to the left. Right. The northwest, so. northeast. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're right. right. Yeah, up, up at the yeah. top. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I've always wondered about why that is, but okay. We're off center. A bit off center. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I thought of something else, but I won't go there. <laughs> Modern geneticists no longer use these familiar symbols and instead rely on a square for male and a circle for female. This symbolism was developed by Pliny Earle a doctor with the Bloomingdale Asylum for the Insane in New York <laughs> It's in a great place to use this one. Uh, yeah, I wonder if that was the same one where Nellie Bly was. That was in one of our other episodes. Uh, anyway, while explaining the inheritance of colorblindness, that's why he, uh, he, um, 
he came up with those symbols. It's not really entirely clear why he uh, why he deviated from the classical symbols, but um, one explanation was later given by one of his associates named Edward Nettleship, who claimed that Earl had been quote unable to get any printer symbols capable of printing the traditional okay. symbols. Okay, so yeah. So he used you, what was what was already there. Used what, what was already there. He used uh, tools that were used to print music. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, all right. So anyway, that's uh, that's the ancient the symbolism of male and female symbols. Now let's go on to something a little bit different. This one's called the fleur de lis, common symbol and a decoration that has its roots in France. Literally, fleur de lis translates to lily flower. It has long been associated with the Virgin Mary and was adopted by the Catholic Church as a symbol of purity. According to Britannica.com, in the year 800 A.D., Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as emperor and presented him with a royal blue banner decorated with golden fleur-de-lis. And any time on Remnant Stew that I can work in a reference to Charlemagne, you know <laughs> we're going to do it because I, I, I love saying that name. <laughs> this banner uh, became the flag of France for the next several hundred years, and it's uh, been interpreted as an element that is both religious and political in its symbolism. While it's no longer used on the flag, it is still used uh, in the French coat of arms. From a website called FamilySearch.org, we find a nice article called The Fleur de Lis, Its Meanings and Uses, by a terrific young journalist named Allison Ensign. Some of the following information come from that article. Um, you'll likely recognize the symbol, which typically has three petals attached at, at a vase. Uh, it's often presented plainly, but ornate or intricate variations are common as well. Though strongly associated with France, as mentioned above, examples have been found of its use in earlier times. One of these was uh, uh, the earliest surviving example is uh, that's known anyway, was on a gold helmet used by the Scythians. They were a European nomadic group from the 7th to the 3rd century B.C. Okay. With such a long history, it's difficult to know the symbol's exact origins. In fact, it's even debated whether the symbol is actually a lily, the flower the emblem is named after, or an iris, uh, which some believe it more closely resembles. In fact, one 18th century historian even speculated that the name instead comes from the River Lee, where yellow irises are common and the Franks once lived. Another theory uh, connecting the fleur-de-lis with, with an iris comes from the German word for yellow iris in the Middle Ages, leash or lees. Well, whether the flower is in fact a lily or an iris, the fleur-de-lis is a common, uh, commonly associated uh, with French history because French monarchs adopted the symbol. Uh, France is historically a Catholic uh, country, and the emblem also became closely connected with French Catholicism. The fleur-de-lis is an iconic symbol that permeates modern culture as well. That's right. You can find the design at the top of fence posts, on the north point of a compass, on the pattern of fabric, and on the New Orleans Saints football helmets. <laughs> With each use, the fleur-de-lis holds unique symbolism. In a religious context, it, means, uh, it may devote purity. Uh, French monarchs use the symbol to denote their divine right to rule. Uh, many scouting organizations use the fleur-de-lis as their symbol. One famous example, of course, is the Boy Scouts of America. Their emblem is a red or gold fleur-de-lis with an eagle flying in front of it. The reason it's used in scouting comes from the origin of scouting itself. 
In one of the first scouting camps, scouts were awarded a Florida Lee badge. Lord Baden-Powell, the leader of the camp, claimed that he took inspiration for the use of the Florida Lee from the north point of a compass. To him, it symbolized that scouts are reliable and, like a compass, lead the way. Yeah, because it kind of points upward. Right. Just like, like true north. The three petals also came to symbolize the three aspects of scouts' promise. These include duty to God, responsibility for self, and service to others. So they can kind of match your three there. In Christianity, lilies symbolize purity and chastity, which may be why the Florida Lee historically represents the Virgin Mary. Coins from the 11th century, noble seals, statues, and stained glass windows depict Mary holding the flower. While Mary has the strongest connection with the flower, it's also believed been used to represent Christ or the Holy Trinity. Right. The three petals establish a clear connection with the three persons of the Trinity. Alternatively, the three petals have also been associated with faith, wisdom, and chivalry. Ah, chivalry. It's not dead. <laughs> Just hard official, to find. Yeah, hard to find. <laughs> it didn't die with Charlemagne. Though, right. So. <laughs> Many official European entities include the symbol on their coat of arms. For example, the coat of arms for the Kingdom of France has multiple golden fleur-de-lis symbols on a royal blue background. Many European cities have also used it on their coat of arms. Among them are Florence, Italy, Lincoln, England, Wiesbaden, Germany, and Skierwetze, Poland. Some cities even use it because the name of their city kind of sounds like a lily, such as Lilindal, Finland, and Lelystad, Netherlands. So there you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Fleur de Lis. Well, and and I'm going to expand on it. As you said, Steve, the fleur de lis. Oh, wait, was, there's more? There's wait, more. There's more. <laughs> I, I love the fleur de lis. It's oh, wait just, a minute. It's First a of really... all, I, I love the old Johnny Carson show when they would do a bit, kind of a serious bit, and then Ed would say, that's just about all. That's everything that you'd ever want to know on that little piece of paper. Everything you'd want to know. And then Johnny would say, you're wrong, moose breath, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's more. But there's more? Yes, there's more. Uh, the fleur de lis is a well-established symbol of France and French mar- our monarchy, like we've said. But here in the United States, the fleur de lis has been adopted and celebrated by the state of Louisiana. Uh-huh. It's not hard to understand where the adoption of the, the symbol came from. It's called the fleur de lis. Came- <laughs> <laughs> the Louis. <laughs> it's not hard to understand where the symbol came from, given the, the state's French heritage. Right. It's said that the French explorer René Robert... Cavier, Cavier, Sur de la Salle, who named the entire Mississippi Basin La Louisiana to honor Louis the Fourteenth, uh-huh. planted a fleur de lis flag at the mouth of the Mississippi River, which lies just south of New Orleans. Okay. Now, the city of New Orleans holds strongly to its history and French heritage, and right. nowhere in Louisiana is the symbol of the fleur de lis more in. That enthusiastically embraced than in New Orleans. Right, you see it everywhere. You walk it through the city, you'll see it everywhere you look, from the architecture to the tops of the fence posts to uniforms of the football team, like you said, yeah. the Saints. Um, the odd name of the team, by the way, is a nod to the predominantly Catholic faith in the city and the fact that its birthday is on November 1st, 1966, All Saints Day. All Saints Day. And that's probably the most commentary on the- sports you'll ever hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> While the Fleur de Lis may have strong ties to the history of the city, the icon 
has come to have a new and deep, deeply significant meaning to the residents of New Orleans, which right. I love that. Okay, you know that language is always evolving and everything. So symbolism also does, symbols and, and everything. And I love this. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina made landfall, leaving a path of devastation in oh, its yeah. wake along a portion of the Gulf Coast. But no city suffered more than New Orleans. Located below sea level with a levee holding back the waters of the Gulf, the city was horribly flooded by the storm surge when the right. levee that was designed to stand withstand a Category 3 storm couldn't stand up to the incredibly strong hurricane that blew in at a Category 5 with winds up to 175 miles per hour. The destruction of the city and the loss of life was overwhelming. And here in Houston, we were affected because a lot of the evacuees came to right. our city, and a lot of them you, even stayed. You mean stayed. cut and shoot, right? Yeah. In, in and the, shoot, the greater right? cut and yeah. shoot area. Southern, southern, cut and shoot, yeah. southern cut and shoot area. Yeah. Well, in the wake of the devastating storm, it was written that the Fleur-de-Lis, quote, became more. It became a symbol of pride, of strength, of defiance, yeah. and of determination to rebuild one of America's great cities. Right. In the aftermath of Katrina, it has become a powerful, effective signifier of the city's rebirth. In a sense, the fleur-de-lis has been vested with a signif significance far beyond our separate histories. It is the vehicle of our imagination of what the new New Orleans can be. Good. Nice job, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I got my information <clears throat> from NOLA.com. John Pope, a blog post on Gambinos.com, which is the website of a New Orleans bakery. That's Man. how much they hold to their history. Like, history is everywhere, everywhere. in that city. Yes, I'll vote sure. for a road trip. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm let's you. go to that bakery. Coming to you next time, Remnant Stew from NOLA. <laughs> and now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. All right, time for the trivia challenge. Yeah, you know what this is like. Uh, what you do, you got to like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all of that will be the winner and will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. So, Leah, what is our question today? Okay, this symbol is in many ancient religions and believed to be the herald of cosmic secrets that can reveal omens and foretell the future. It is also a symbol of power, wisdom, mental acuity, and high energy. The symbol is most famous in North mythology, with two being named Hugen and Munin. Munin. What is the symbol, and what do the names mean? Wait, wait, wait I know this. It's the CBSI, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not oh, it's the NBC so. Peacock. All right. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for spending some time with us. Check us out at Facebook and Instagram at Rubens Two Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious at remnantstew.com. We love hearing from you. Yes. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp, Dr. Stephen Meeker, and I research, write, and host each episode, along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. You're welcome. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with a voiceover by Morgan Hughes, and special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gold. Absolutely. Now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, your family, your pharmacist, and that aging hippie friend with a peace sign tattoo. <laughs> Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and, and always stay curious. curious.